From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. And hey, we've made it, our season one finale. To celebrate, we're giving you an episode that's a little longer than usual, featuring an award-winning author who's written a book about one of the most prominent figures in American literature. Her name is Laura Dasso-Walls, and her book is Henry David Thoreau, A Life, published in 2017 by the University of Chicago Press. Holding an endowed chair in Notre Dame's Department of English, Laura received fellowships from both the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation and the National Endowment for the Humanities in support of her work on the book, the first full-length, comprehensive biography of Thoreau in a generation. Earlier this year, it was awarded the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Biography. In talking with Laura, many sides of Thoreau emerge. Writer, abolitionist, leader in the transcendental religious movement, and so on. Just as importantly, though, it becomes clear there is one thing that he was not, the Walden Pond hermit of our imaginations. We hope you enjoy the conversation and come back in October for the start of Season 2. Laura Dasso-Walls, thank you for joining me. I'm with the Side of Knowledge. Thank you, Ted. This is a pleasure. I think for most people, when we hear the name Thoreau, we think of Walden, and it conjures this image of a pond. Maybe it's in kind of a densely shrouded wood, this image of a hermit kind of cut off from the rest of society. Yeah. And for that reason, because I don't think I'm alone in that, I'd like to begin by asking you to read um, a short passage from your book, Henry David Thoreau, A Life, that kind of speaks a little bit to that. No, I'd be happy to. And this is probably the most often quoted (laughs) passage from the book. Oh, I I feel like I'm in good company. So come to a good starting point. His two years, two months, and two days living at Walden Pond became and would forever remain an iconic work of performance art. The surprise is how quickly and effectively Thoreau understood what was happening and pivoted his vision and goals to take advantage of it, starting with those first curious passers-by drawn by the sound of his axe. After all, what good is a reporter, even of God himself, without someone to report to? As soon as Thoreau found himself explaining himself to another, the conditions for Walden were laid. And I I love that again because of, I think, the contrast to what kind of our popular imagination is. But what I wanted to ask you was, what did he go to Walden Pond initially seeking? And what, what did he come away with after that time? How it changed? Because you talk about the change there. Yeah, well, sort of a double-sided answer to why he went there. So the ostensible purpose was to write a book. He would had been nurturing a concept for a book for some years that would be a memorial to his brother. Um, His older brother had died in his arms. Uh, They they were very close and they had done a lot, grown up together adventuring out in the woods. Um, And 
Thoreau wanted to honor him by writing a book about an adventure that they had taken together, spending um, a couple of weeks on a boat journey. So that was going to gather up a lot of his thinking and writing and observation as a young man, and he needed a quiet space, a kind of writer's workshop, to get away from this big bustling household he lived in and concentrate. So that's one reason. But of course the deeper reason was there was a lot going on both in his life and, and in the life of all Americans at this moment. Um, slavery had become a very pressing issue for uh, northerners, for New Englanders particularly. His family had been drawn into anti-slavery activism. There was a lot of talk of reform and various kinds of reform efforts, uh, religious reform, temperance, uh, new philosophies. And he admired the reformers, that, well, some of them, that he knew. But they all had slightly different sets of opinions or concerns, and he came to a point where he knew that he was passionately engaged in questions about how we should live in a difficult world, but he didn't know how he would answer those questions. And so the deeper reason to go to Walden Pond was to really sort himself out uh, and figure out what kind of ground was he standing on and how, it, once he is literally figured out where he stood and how he faced the world, what should he do about it? And you talked about it there, is this idea of a little bit of a writer's retreat, but really, in reality, he ends up doing this kind of, he's doing this very heavy intellectual and spiritual lifting internally, but he's kind of he's actually in full view of the town around him. It's not like he's cut off from the world while he's doing this. That's the thing that somehow gets dropped out of the picture, and yet if you go to Concord, you go to Walden Pond, you'll see it's it's basically everybody's backyard. Um, and that's the way it was. He was right off the main road going out of town. There there was the railroad just right across the pond, uh, a good stone's throw away. There was a little side road that went right past his house down to the, everybody's favorite fishing hole and swimming hole. So if he wanted to be a hermit, he probably should have just stayed in town where he could have had a garret somewhere and been ignored. But right there, building this house in the middle of open space, uh, in view of everybody, uh, of course people wanted to know what are you doing um, and everybody knew him it was a small place people knew each other so it was, they knew this was John and Cynthia's younger son uh, what was he up to this time and so conversations were constantly starting and that's the thing that really impresses me so he could have put up a keep, up, keep out sign um, instead he would stop his work and talk and this became kind of a thing. People would stop by, and talking to Henry must have been very interesting and entertaining, um, and he seems to have quite enjoyed it. In fact, he was, believe it or not, a famous conversationalist in his day. So he starts to ask people questions, they start responding and asking him questions, and it becomes a kind of soapbox experience, and 
that's the point about the pivot. He enjoys it. And as that unfolds, his whole sense of a deeper meaning and a deeper conversation that he's having with an audience becomes a big part of this new book, this Walden. And so in the sense of performance art, I mean, people watched him swing his axe, cut the trees, uh, shape the timbers, put up the timbers, and all of this was, I, I started th realizing it's very sculptural, it's kind of artwork, but it's kind of ongoing, always in process, and people come by to see, well, how are your beans doing? Or, and I thought, well, that's performance art, and then it hit me, well, of course, it's precisely what it was, um, and in the best sense, and it was all real, totally authentic. Everything was lived out of this authentic impulse of trying to get something deeply right. But to have done it in that way, and I don't think he planned, well, I'm, I'm certain that he didn't plan this. But as it matured, he went with it. And uh, so there's an odd way in which the public person sort of starts to assume a kind of role in, in public, and I talk about that as a kind of celebrity good. But of course there was that deep private person who wanted to write, who wanted to encounter the deep realities of modernizing life, who uh, needed to be in solitude. So he developed a system, he put a chair out in front of the door that said, hey, come on by. Uh, let's talk. And if he removed the chair, brought it inside, it meant leave me alone. Leave me alone. I'm working. And if you interrupted him when he was working, uh, he could be really very rude. And there are some stories about that. So that's how he protected his solitude. One thing that came out in reading the book, and you talked about it here, and I think, again, this is another misperception that people have. We think Thoreau lived at Walden Pond, and he wrote a book called Walden, therefore that book was written while he was there, when in reality it wasn't published until seven years right. after he right. left the pond. What changed in him and his writing in between the time he left the pond and, in, and the time when he published the book with the pond's name on it? Yeah, that's a great question. So he left the pond with a with the manuscript of his first book in hand, a week. And at the time he finally got that published, he thought he had Walden almost finished. That was 1849. Well, that first book did not sell. It wasn't marketed. He made. He didn't go to the best person to have it uh, printed and published. So it became very clear that he'd had no future as a big best-selling author which was one terrible blow to him um, it, because it meant that he needed to find another way to earn a living and it also discouraged him he put aside writing projects for a while and he also broke with Emerson, his mentor um, who had advised him to go ahead and publish um, and, and then not done very good work with helping to review or publicize the book so Thoreau felt betrayed and so that big break was a kind of psychological factor and then finally um, his he had moved back with his family in town and he started to um, observe the town not from outside but from inside and also thinking about his own role and shape of his own life um, 
he starts taking longer and longer walks. And the walking is an exercise in writing because he walks with pencil in hand, takes notes, and then converts them into these journal entries where he starts to fuse all of these questions and his observations out in nature, talking with his townspeople, into a new way of writing. And this in early 1852, January 1852, it all comes together, and he's ready, as he says in his journal, to make holes of parts. And that's when he takes out that halfway manuscript of Walden and builds it out into the Walden we know over the next two and a half years. And the Walden that we know is a truly great book. And so it's that it's the writing he does in town, living with his family, taking these walks, observing the life around him, and then looking back on the meaning of those years, years before now. Um, it seems like almost looking into his deep past, and he's thinking, what was that about? What did that mean to me? Um, and those are questions that he couldn't have asked at the pond. So he had to be away from it uh, to, to start to really transmute it into this, this kind of golden, almost utopian past, but always in view of this, this kind of angst about the present moment um, and uh, the contrast. So just as a, a evidence of that contrast, I mentioned um, slavery and the anti-slavery movement. Walden was literally coming off the presses, uh, being printed in Boston, when Thoreau, um, in response to the Fugitive Slave Act and the rendition of enslaved people um, at gunpoint in Boston, this had um, his, his circle up in arms, um, metaphorical arms because they were nonviolent, uh, um, believers in nonviolence. Thoreau stood up at a huge rally in Framingham, Massachusetts, and uh, gave his most famous anti-slavery um, address, slavery in Massachusetts, basically saying, we're all part of this. We should all be ashamed. It's not just a Southern problem. With an American flag hung upside down to indicate the distress. The American flag I mean, was hanging yeah. upside down as a sign of distress. Yeah. The nation is in trouble. Um, the session this um, rally had opened with William Lloyd Garrison lighting a match and burning a copy of the American Constitution until it was nothing but ashes and the crowd is, is uh, horrified and cheering and screaming and hooting uh, and uh, then Thoreau stands up to speak I mean you have to envision what that was like so there it is um, that this, this is all part of the whole of Walden but you can see the shift about midway through where Thoreau feels that he's not there yet, he hasn't succeeded in conveying the message, the kind of social criticism isn't really getting over to his audience, and he shifts the tone into this deeper, more meditative, more lyric, more poetic uh, tone, and it becomes more available to, in terms of outward nature and a kind of positive, like, look at how beautiful the world is, look at how deeply it engages on all the levels of our of our living and feeling and emotion 
and uh, carry us through that kind of lyric grace. And then even as he's putting the finishing touches on that lyric grace, um, he's writing this fiery, angry, furious uh, polemic, slavery in Massachusetts, um, and stands up and delivers that. So are they two different works? Sure. Are they um, different thoroughs? Not a bit. So that's the that's where Walden goes from being a pretty good book to a truly great book. It's under the pressure um, of, of that terrible national uh, crisis. One of the things that you wrote about Thoreau in your introduction is that there's no American author who is more place-centered than yeah, he is. Right. And it reminded me, my own favorite author is Twain, and... Mm. Twain, there's such a strong connection to the Mississippi River. I, it's not, yes. it's not in everything that he does, but there, it immediately took me there. And I'm wondering, as a scholar of literature that studies literature, what do you think are the strengths of someone who works in that way that ties what they're doing to a very real time and place? And maybe what are some of the limitations of approaching your work that way? Well, the strengths are obvious in everything Thoreau writes, which is um, the kind of the deep knowledge, it's like taking a walk, the same walk every day, and just doing this year in and year out. At first you're excited, and there's a period maybe when you start getting bored, like this again. If you push past that boredom, you enter a new zone where suddenly, because it's so deeply familiar, You've internalized all that familiarity and you start to see change and you start to see the new and you start to see the subtleties and they become important and interesting and suddenly you re-engage on this much deeper level. And so Concord for Thoreau was like this. It wasn't until he tried to leave Concord, he went to New York, to Staten Island for a while, hated it. And he was so grateful to come back because he knew what he had there and so he plunges into place uh, with a kind of pride and joy and, uh, and and he never lets go of that, that becomes, he knows now he's a conquered author, he's a regional author and so it becomes that kind of deep familiarity the limitation of that is that, remember he had to go to Staten Island in order to say I am a conquered author New York is not my place, I need to return, that's where my creative work will, mm -hmm. will have to be well, if you don't ever go anywhere else, again, you lose the edge. You lose the sense of the, uh, the richness or the distinction of the place. So he starts to travel. He goes not far, but far enough. He goes uh, to Cape Cod. So he sees the ocean, and he starts comparing Molden Pond with the, the wild Atlantic Ocean. And this is, this is a wonderful... It just deepens and... and uh, illuminates uh, his whole sense of the planet and who we are. He starts thinking about early colonial history. I see this is where the pilgrims landed, right? So, so he starts thinking about uh, uh, Atlantic history. He witnesses a shipwreck, and it's an Irish, one of the Irish famine boats, and he watches the Irish, um, and he watches the, uh, the terrible trauma of the families trying to find the bodies of their loved ones. And this adds this darkness. Well, you can't see that on Walden Pond, right? So 
So this deep, he goes to the Maine woods and uh, loves it so much he returns uh, three times to take, uh, uh, to travel deeper and deeper into the Maine woods and uh, sees an entirely different uh, kind of landscape and, and something much closer to what we would call wilderness. It's all been heavily logged. Uh, and he's fascinated by the logging operations, but once he gets on top of Mount Katahdin, he sees um, true mountain wilderness and uh, has a profound kind of spiritual revelation, which he takes back to Walden Pond, and that, again, transmutes Walden Pond into something more. He goes to Canada, to French Canada, and hears everybody speaks French. I mean, it's the most mundane and sort of absurd, uh, of course. I mean, it's like going to Europe and, and saying, you know, in Germany they speak German. But, but if, you're, if you're there and suddenly engaged in navigating in another language and realizing everything is the same but everything is different, well, he has that total defamiliarization and it launches a whole new set of inquiries about, well, what is North American settlement there? Why are the English like the English and the French are like the French? And our Americans were more like the English, but why? His own family, his father's side, was French. So this was a kind of a personal inquiry for him. So there is the expansion you can compare. Um, but it was an incomplete project because he never got to the West. And that's what he'd always planned and dreamed of doing. By the time he got to the west. He actually came through this area. He took the train to Chicago and uh, went up the Mississippi You like Mark Twain. He did his little Mark Twain riverboat excursion. Uh, by the time he uh, came through here, he was observing the, the Great Lakes. Uh, he was fascinated by Chicago. He um, was deeply absorbed by the prairie. And he was dying by that time. That's why he took the trip to try to recover. Um, he died, he was only 44, which is just, I mean, he died a young man by mm -hmm. our standards. Um, so people talk about late thorough, and I do sometimes myself, and catch myself, there really was no late thorough. He didn't live long enough. So um, as his ideas kept expanding, he could have, he could have gone on easily for another four decades and just mm -hmm. kept unfolding and he knew it and wrote to people about you know the scope of his ambition um, and how he could understand that about his work and the potential for it and mm -hmm. then know that it was coming to an end and he was yeah. in fact on his deathbed and yet be at peace with that that doesn't make sense to me I don't know how he managed to uh, be so serene in the face of that loss I I share in your wonder over that. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to ask you to read um, one more passage from the book. This one, uh, shifting back and changing a little bit, you alluded to um, his friendship with Ralph Waldo Emerson. And it was oh, certainly, yes. from reading the book, a complicated relationship of two, two men who were very close to each other but also could really just drive each other crazy um so i'm wondering yeah. if, if i really i thought you what i marked here i just thought it really summed it up and you really it was very poetic the way you expressed it so yes this is the moment when uh they've had what thoreau thought was the last big break and then he realizes no no <laughs> we're stuck with each other um and so it really kind of culminates this whole um sequence 
if their personalities set each other on edge, if their impossible platonic ideal of friendship pushed them apart, that very distance bound them together, walking, talking, provoking each other, a provocation that Emerson, who saw his own self-reliance mirrored in Thoreau's naysaying, could not resist. Oh, they met sometimes with malice prepense and take the bull by the horns, as Emerson remarked in 1850. But they met always intellectual sparring partners to the end. That's Laura Dasso Walls reading from her, her biography, Henry David Thoreau, A Life. What does understanding the relationship between those two, between Emerson and Thoreau, tell us about his life and writing? Mm. Well, first of all, you sense pretty quickly that he couldn't have been thorough without Emerson. Every teacher can identify with this. So there's the long moment when what Thoreau is doing is imitative or learning from, uh, trying out. So uh, Emerson keeps a journal and he, his first uh, known uh, meeting with Thoreau asks, do you keep a journal? And Thoreau's response is to get a journal, open it up, and write. Emerson asked me, do you keep a journal? And so I make my first entry today. So very, very much. Uh, and it's not just that he keeps a journal, but he keeps it on the sort of Emersonian model. So he writes Emersonian-sounding paragraphs and Emersonian-sounding essays, and he lives with Emerson for a while and has full run of his library. Well, you can see where all this is going. Emerson is the apostle of self-reliance and originality, and here's Thoreau uh, imitating him, and this is not a long-term solution. And so sure enough, this is part of the point of the passage I just um, um, read. They, uh, of course they have tension, and, and Thoreau, when he matures, um, has to really break away from Emerson and find his own voice in his own form. And it's interesting because um, Emerson himself has mixed feelings about this. He doesn't much like Thoreau's new original direction. And so this is a sparring. So they, they spar back and forth for the rest of their lives. Um, deep friends, they owe each other. Emerson learned much from Thoreau too, and you can see the influence going the other way. So the sparring partners to the end, each drawing each other out across this common ground, but across these deep differences. So, um, they, Emerson, years after Thoreau died, when Emerson was himself kind of losing some of his memory, asked his daughter, what was the name of my dearest friend? And she said, Henry Thoreau. Oh, yes, of course. Well, that tells you, from Emerson's point of view, what was going on there. In your book, we get to see Thoreau de develop as kind of this leading figure exponent, trying to figure out what transcendentalism is. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, and you've, you're the, you're the co-editor co of the Oxford Handbook of Transcendentalism, <laughs> so you seem like a good person to ask this question. What would you say is transcendentalism, or who were the transcendentalists generally, and what does it mean to Thoreau in particular? Well, that's a great question, and of course, um, I've had people ask me this before, and enough that I actually am writing about the Transcendentalist now. It's, I'm attempting We've already to... decided you're coming back on the podcast <laughs> to talk about that book when it comes out, so I'm, I'm looking well, forward to that. So here I'll try to keep it short. Um, 
It was a religious movement to begin with. It was um, an outgrowth of uh, the liberal wing of New England um, theology. So the old Purit- old-time Puritan Calvinist churches had been liberalizing over the generations and, um, and uh, to the point where um, the Unitarian church had come to dominate, the Unitarian uh, theology had come to dominate. And one of the most radical of the Unitarians um, was a minister, Boston minister named William Ellery Channing, who at one point gave us a sermon titled Likeness to God. And this is core thinking for him. He said, every human being has a likeness to God. We all, that is, have some element of God within us. And it responds to God um, outside us. It doesn't sound that radical, but the more that he extended this teaching, uh, the more radical it became among the people who gathered around him. Because to say that every human being has this principle of the divine within, or what Emerson calls the infinitude of the private man, means, uh, well, you most certainly have to end slavery. I mean, you have to end slavery right now, this instant, because you cannot keep human beings as slaves. It's obscene. It's uh, it means you must give equal rights to women because they equally have the divine within. And so they must not be limited um, at, in their human, development of their human potential. Well, that becomes Margaret Fuller uh, and the foundation of the women's rights movement. Uh, you must stop uh, committing acts of violence against Native Americans because they too have God within the infinitude of the divine within so you must stop uh, uh, and you must treat Native Americans with all possible dignity and give them all sovereignty well that was absolutely outrageous uh, at the time Uh, and it goes on and on from there. Um, Thoreau extends it even further because he will, and this begins uh, especially at Walden Pond, he starts to look around at non-human creation and says, it isn't just humans who have this divine principle within. That means once we acknowledge it, we must absolutely reform um, everything that we do, all our political decisions, um, all our conduct in the world. Non-human creation, uh, the plants, the animals, they too have this divine principle within. So he starts rethinking ethics, uh, the ethics of, um, well, for instance, vegetarianism, do you eat meat or not? Uh, How do you conduct yourself towards the the non-human world? Uh, Is it okay to cut down a tree? What if the tree also has the principle of the divine? Thoreau is convinced that trees do. Um, this, this for him, becomes uh, the foundation for a new way of thinking about how we manage uh, forests. Um, if, if we're going to manage them, of course, he would rather not manage them at all. But, but uh, you know, granted, okay, we need wood, so, um, but let's, let's do it 
more thoughtfully um, and generously. And it's uh, uh, a part of that becomes, uh, and let's take much of wild nature and keep it wild. Let's, we don't need it all. Let's, in fact, as, as, human, as human beings, um, part of our humanity uh, needs the wild um, to feed and nurture this sort of strangeness, to, to keep us from being too self-centered and too smug um, in our um, own closed-in ways. So uh, it, it goes on and on from that basic principle and each transcendentalist, each of the people who became identified with this movement goes off in uh, different directions. I didn't mention children. You can't educate children as uh, little adults who must be disciplined and, and beaten into obedience. Uh, good Lord, no. You must find that divine principle within each child uh, and, and work to unfold it and develop it. Well, that means reforming American education, doesn't it? And that this founds the tradition of American uh, progressive education, starting with kindergarten, which is, by the way, a transcendentalist import from Germany, uh, courtesy of uh, Elizabeth Peabody, one of our great educators. So there is virtually no area of American life uh, that was untouched and mm -hmm. is untouched today um, by the reforms that these people initiated. With your book, Henry David Thoreau, A Life, if you were able to sit down and talk to just the average reader picking this book up off the shelf, or what you would hope the average reader picking this book off the shelf, what would you hope that they would take away from this work? That, as we talked about earlier, really was, I mean, it was a decade-long project, and even yeah. some senses longer from having come to him when you were in high school to having thought yeah. about him for a long time. Mm -hmm actually 10 years spent working on this particular book, what right. would you hope that someone would walk away with? There's a lot of layers to that <laughs> question. Um, one more general response would be um, when you meet people who are not scholars, uh, want to know what you're writing about, I often um, speak about history and our sense of our ancestors, our legacy, that we live more richly in the present if we have a relationship with those who came before who are still very present um, in our lives and in, in um, our world around us and if we're closed off to that uh, we live very shallow lives um, we have no sense of the roots we have no sense of how we live out um, uh, the hopes and dreams of those who came before so in that sense all history can bear forward a kind of richer relationship, how we live in the present. Um, a little more specifically, transcendentalist and thorough um, as one of the, the most important of them, uh, lived at a time of immense uh, uh, political trauma and stress in the United States. Um, we worry about the breakdown of civility today, for instance. This exact question, some of the headlines, some of the editorials I've read in the last uh, week or two could have been printed in the newspapers and, and, and would have been discussed by, um, by these people uh, in the 1840s and 1850s because they too were worried about how to conduct themselves uh, when they had a sense of the a breakdown of democracy and a breakdown of civility. Um, how do you deliberate questions? How do you 
come to consensus or an, even just an agreement to move forward politically in an atmosphere where, in, in their case, um, half of America was standing for slavery and the other half was polarizing um, against and saying, you know, slavery must be ended uh, no matter what the cost. So that, that moment of peril um, becomes a place that we can go to examine if we think you know, things are difficult today. It was much worse then. Mm-hmm. How they uh, stood up to that, how they thought about it, how they conducted lives um, and, and still kept faith in humanity, faith in each other, and faith in God or kind of movement of justice in the world. It helps to know that there were people who came before who bore these questions um, in their lives and uh, lived with them and actually um, did make positive change in the world, moved us closer uh, to where um, we hope uh, we'll be going. Finally, to Thoreau. The Thoreau that I... um, came to know as I uh, was reading and thinking about him you know, years and years before I ever conceived writing a biography, um, was a good person to have in my life, um, and a good presence, and that uh, sense of somebody who is always on a quest, whose every answer becomes, you know, ten more questions, uh, so his aliveness to the world around him, um, if you look at his career and how much more he could have done, I end the book uh, with Thoreau's serenity in the face of the end of his life and his conviction that uh, in some way that I can't accept because it's not okay for me, I wish he'd been able to go on for, for decades longer and realize all the work that he was doing, but his serenity in the face of that was part of this aliveness, which even as he was dying, he looked to the young people around him, and he, as he'd been mentored by Emerson, he turned around and became a mentor to the young people around him, and that's where I end the book, because of course part of that serenity was those young people were literally at his deathbed, and uh, uh, young Horace Mann, who became a great um, botanist, um, Louisa May Alcott, probably the one most people will have heard of, um, who adored Thoreau, um, very close to him, and felt that he had shown her a kind of um, potential way to live uh, in the world as a woman, but without the bounds um, of gender. Uh, Edward Emerson, Waldo Emerson's son. um, So you have Thoreau passing on this gift that he felt he'd been given uh, to young people. And so I suppose that takeaway to me is simply that we look to people like this, and there's many biographies, there's many ways of doing this. Um, We look to people around us um, in our past and our legacy as ways to uh, uh, carry them forward in our own lives into the present. And then we too then be, can become the subject um, who, who pass on our gifts to those who will come after us. And that kind of continuity, it's, it's what historians, whether we admit it or not, we all, um, 
want to, to carry this forward in our own way. And when you're a literary historian, well, then you have the magic of language. I suppose what I really want people to take away is um, go find some thorough and read. Just read and see what it means to you, and uh, that will be passing it forward. I think also, add my own recommendation to that would be your book, Henry David Thoreau, Alive. Laura Dasso-Walls, this was a pleasure. Thank you for making time to, to do this with me. Thank you, Ted. This was a delight. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame. For more, visit provost.nd.edu slash podcast. <laughs>